Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Prince William and Kate Middleton's tour of the Caribbean hits a dud note. Prince Philip's memorial is overshadowed by Prince Andrew. And our friend, the great Omid Scobie, joins us to talk about it all. I'm Jack Royston, Newsweek's Royal Correspondent. And I'm Kristen Meinzer, a royal watcher based in the U.S. And this is Newsweek's Royal Report. Hello, Jack. Hello, listeners. Hello, everybody. We have a big, big show for you today, and most of it is going to focus on Will and Kate's disastrous tour of the Caribbean. There is obviously a lot to talk about here, and joining us for it all will be the great Omid Scobie. Omid, of course, is the co-author of Finding Freedom, and he's the chief royal editor for Harper's Bazaar. Omid, oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you here with us today. Thank you for being here. Oh, thanks so much for having me, guys. I feel like we've got quite a lot to get into. <laughs> we yes, definitely indeed. do. We definitely do. So let's begin by just setting the stage. What were the royals hoping for from this tour? I mean, this was the trip that, you know, Palisades were sort of proudly calling the charm offensive, you know, the reminder of why the great British royal family is also worthy of holding that same status within the Commonwealth and the Commonwealth realm or what's left of it. And of course, pretty much since before takeoff, it was hit by, I guess, the first reminders that this tour might not be hitting the right notes. And elaborate on that. Let's talk a little <laughs> bit about that before they even took off. Let's talk about that. Yeah, you know, I think with a tour such as this, you know, you're vi visiting former British colonies, uh, countries that have deep history when it comes to slavery that was sort of overseen mostly by Britain and royal family at times. It's impossible to start a trip like that without feeling like it must be acknowledged in some way. And, you know, I think we have seen in the past where a tour has been able to set the tone from the very beginning. I remember being in briefings for the Sussex's tour of Southern Africa and how it was Buckingham Palace staff who really went out of their way to say that this tour would be a little different, that the couple would be mindful of sort of the politics within the local areas that they're visiting, that we wouldn't be seeing state dinners, there wouldn't be the sort of expensive wardrobes that you're used to on a royal trip. So that was kind of proof that at one point the palace did know how to sort of make these things work <laughs> in the modern environment. But I think partly to do with the fact that this was a trip celebrating the Queen's Jubilee. And so it was sort of harking back to times of sort of, I guess, when royals were celebrated equally across the world. I think it sort of in the process completely forgot about being respectful or mindful of the sort of political climates in each country or what each country is going through. You know, we'd seen last year 
with Barbados becoming a republic. And the reasons behind that were, of course, for them to finally sort of claim that independence they've had for so many decades. And so for that to actually mean something, it meant breaking away from the British monarchy. And so, of course, many other countries are thinking the same. And I think for whatever reason, it was felt by Kensington Palace that sending over two smiley royals and pretty clothes to sort of entertain the locals would be enough. And it clearly wasn't. So it sounds like you potentially think that Harry and Meghan might have approached something like this differently. Yeah, you know, I, I almost hesitate to bring up their names so early on because, of course, people are going to say it's predictable that I would say this. But this really isn't even about Harry and Meghan. I just remember a time when the palace staff and those employed by the Crown were thinking in that very specific way. And so a lot of that comes from the leadership above them. And clearly that wasn't there with the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge. I think they were very keen to stick to that very traditional tour format that we know and at times have loved. You know, I've traveled many times with the Cambridges. I've seen them do it really well, um, in, particularly in Canada and Australia and even in India, where they've been sort of greatly received. And those sort of traditional royal tricks, if you want to call them that, worked really well. But I think that certainly in Belize and in Jamaica, I think people are a little bit more sceptical before they arrived and very little was done to change that. Well, let's walk through the tour together, shall we? You just mentioned Belize. That's where things kicked off. Let's talk about that, Oman. Yeah, well, of course, there was controversy over the first engagement that they had planned. They were going to visit a cacao farm and it was, you know, very much part of the agriculture and and the sort of big industries over there. Chocolate is a big thing in Belize. And so this local family was really excited about the couple visiting, but there were also disputes ongoing prior to the couple arriving over the land um, that was sort of I guess, currently taken ownership by the uh, Fauna Flora International Organization, which Prince William is a royal patron of. And this has been ongoing. I think the conversation about land ownership is something that's quite sensitive there at the moment. And so when you bring in that sort of colonial past and the history of slavery as well, and you have members of the royal family who want to land a helicopter without permission and uh, not actually or seemingly not want to hear the concerns of locals in the area, it it inevitably ended up with locals protesting. And, you know, people will argue about the size of the protest, but it's a small area. So, of course, those protests were going to be small. But I think this was the first missed opportunity of the trip because I would have loved to have seen William and Kate actually want to continue with the engagement, but make time to sit down with the locals beforehand and hear their stories, amplify their concerns and actually show that they care. In the end, they cancelled it and moved on to a farm that did want to host them. And I think that that was almost a little arrogant in a way. And it set the tone for how we would see them deal with a number of local concerns throughout the entire trip. On the subject of which, obviously, that was not the only protest. And I think the next set of protests in Jamaica, organised by the Advocates Network, they were quite strong with their wording in an open letter, weren't they, that they handed over to the British High Commission. This open letter called for an apology from the royal family for slavery and also for reparations. Yes, and you know, and it's, listen, protests of this nature are not unknown on trips in the Caribbean. You know, we've seen it before, but it 
that's when diplomacy matters. And I think that that's when how you handle the situation is incredibly important. And again, we saw William and Kate probably under the guidance of those around them fly into the country and completely ignore what had actually been building up for a couple of days. And again, I think there would have been this brilliant opportunity to actually meet with perhaps some of the people involved in organising that protest and start a conversation. You know, we've heard members of the royal family in the past talk about listening and learning and wanting to actually communicate with the people who and their issues wherever they're visiting. And I think that there was this almost sort of, again, an arrogant take on on the situation that we saw from Kensington Palace and the Cambridges, which was just to ignore it and hope that it goes away. But as we've seen with any potential crisis the royal family face, ignoring it never works, despite it being the sort of go-to reflex every time. Yeah, and the photo ops did not help things. We just have to point out some of these photo ops were absolutely terrible. The kids behind the chain link fences, that colonial imagery of Will and Kate in their all white uniforms at the, you know, in the back of a Land Rover. I can't help but wonder what was the PR team thinking during that mm. moment? Why did they have these kinds of photo ops? Yeah, I mean, Jack, you've been on enough royal engagements and trips in your time as well. You know how much planning goes into mm. these trips. Not a stone is left unturned. And the fact that there's recon ahead of the trips always goes to sort of prevent any of these disasters from happening. Now, I can understand why people visiting the first time around when when it is an empty football pitch and an empty town might not have thought of some of the imagery until the actual moment. But the most important thing is to have people there who are actually mindful of what looks good and what doesn't and is appropriate for each area that they visit. And I just think that that was what was lacking on this trip. There was no one there to actually identify that scene as potentially problematic because, of course, we know that the reality is that the couple were just trying to meet as many people as possible. There was nothing sinister behind those images, but it was the thoughtlessness. And I think that you know, I said it at the time, you know, we talk about diversity mattering and, you know, the palace has even been quite candid about some of their diversity statistics um, during the last accounts that we had from them. But Kensington Palace was the one household that refused to share that statistic. And that's because it is a pretty much 100% white household when it comes to the working staff around members of the royal family. And clearly that hasn't changed, because if it had, I think we might have seen a slightly different approach in this situation. And again, you know, we saw on the ground, there was a real pushback, I found, from many of the people who were out there covering it that didn't want to, to listen to why an image could potentially not have carried well. You know, just looking at the conversations on social media, and of course, we know that social media can sometimes be a complete mess, but it's also a lens into how certain people are feeling. And I think that if people were feeling offended by that image or triggered in some way, that's a moment to pause and ask why. And again, we didn't see that from the palace. And I think we heard this from some of the people who were on on that trip later on, you know, and reflection as always, you know, comes in far too late in these situations. But I think that the general consensus is that this is a team that just wasn't prepared for a tour of this nature, this magnitude, or in the environment that, that it was in with such strong history that needed to be acknowledged and needed to be thought of along every step, particularly in Jamaica on the day of protests. 
Yeah, I think just to just to talk a little bit more about the photo itself. So what you're talking about here is there were hands pushed through the holes in a wire fence, isn't it? And um, William and Kate kind of went over to, to the fence. So I think from my point of view, what I feel people felt was wrong about that image had a lot to do with the power dynamic between the royals and the children on the other side of the fence. Is that how you saw it, Omid? Yeah, you know, it was an immediate image of segregation and a segregation not only of colour, but also of status. And it just, it was a very powerful image in many ways, but of course the wrong image to have attached with the tour. But I think, you know, listen, I didn't go on this trip partly because I thought it would just be another royal tour. I've got other projects going on at the moment. And I never thought that it would be on the, the world sort of news agenda at the time. And I don't think it was until that image captured the eyes of everyone. And I think people started to pay attention to what was going on, but of course, for all the wrong reasons. And as everyone watched, it continued to sort of play out very much under that tone. Now, the other photo op we need to dive into more is the Colonial Land Rover parade situation. We had William and Kate both wearing all white outfits. Kate's was kind of lacy they looked very much like colonialists riding in the back mm. of this Land Rover as if looking out on their people that they rule over. It was not a good look. I know the whole world was cringing with this one. How did that come about? How did that happen? We all should know better in this day and age than to have a photo op like that. Yeah. Again, this goes back to, I think, this desire for the trips to be a hark back to royal tours of the past and also doing what we often see with members of the royal family, which is those sort of sartorial links to things that have already happened. And unfortunately for, for the Duchess, she wore a dress that had last been seen or that style or silhouette had last been seen on the Queen during her, t her visit to Jamaica when it was still a colonial country. And so I think that immediately it got off on a bum note. And, you know, look, it's clear that there was a desire also there within the military to have this moment. And I'm sure that they were very excited that they had found or had this Land Rover that had such a sort of strong tie to Prince Philip. And so when you look at it in an isolated way, it's actually the perfect royal engagement because it does what we usually expect on these trips. And had it have been in Canada, I think people would have really lapped it up. But of course, this came off the back of what had already been an in potentially insensitive few days. And again, I think the images just didn't travel well because actually all they were doing were feeding into the narrative that was already growing overseas, particularly, I think, in the US press and foreign press. It was interesting to see the difference between coverage here in the UK compared to what the rest of the world was saying, because I think that you know, with royal coverage in newspaper, British newspapers, it's driven largely by the royal editors. And those royal editors were all on the ground with the palace and, and probably quite keen to remain on side with the palace. And so I remember there was one day there was, I think it was the image from this particular moment that was on the front page of one of the papers. And it was like Kate Dazzles in Jamaica. <laughs> and it was like, no, no reference to anything else. And, and I think that that sort of was a reflection of the fact that some of the people on the ground were just very keen to do as the palace wanted rather than follow what the world wanted to talk about. 
one of the other things that struck me was um, obviously we had a lot of Bob Marley, which is obviously he's a person who a lot of people think of when they think of Jamaica. And he's also a, a musician who is obviously completely ubiquitous. I sometimes think that there probably isn't a minute of any day that goes by where there isn't a youth hostel somewhere in the world playing the best of Bob Marley. <laughs> um, and we had Prince William drop in a reference. He put, They posed next to the statue of Bob Marley and they also dropped in a reference to One Love, um, in William's speech. Now, I wondered what you thought of that. Does that feel like a little bit of a basic reference when, you know, a lot of Bob Marley's music is extremely political? I mean, you can't really split Bob Marley's legacy and his music from themes of black oppression. And I think to sort of go over there and act like you were visiting the Elvis Museum or something, perhaps, <laughs> again, was this sort of another missed opportunity to show that you were deep in thought about the history that surrounded you. I think, again, there was that sort of focus on having fun and the optics that we usually expect with the tour. And it's it lacked depth. And listen, I think for the people that were on the ground there, clearly everyone was having a great time. There's no mistake in the fact that everyone there in Trenchtown was enjoying the fact that they had Raheem Sterling and the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge in a town that usually doesn't have that kind of sort of celebrity attraction on a regular basis. So again, you know, it was that sort of very different feelings, what was going on on the ground to what people could see from overseas or, or through the lens of the news. But ultimately, that is how we picture and follow royal tours and trips. And, you know, the palace constantly talk about optics. And again, I think there's just these sort of continued missed opportunities to actually look like they cared about what people were saying and feeling on the ground. Speaking of missed opportunities, we have to talk about William's speech and about slavery. I personally feel that saying this is a missed opportunity is an understatement. Uh, in my opinion, what he said was essentially, you know, I want to express sorrow that slavery happened. This is never okay. But that's the bare minimum. We all know slavery is not okay. And he was not speaking in the first person. He was speaking in the passive voice. He was essentially just kind of referencing, my dad has said this before, but not taking ownership in any way whatsoever of the role that the British royal family has played in slavery. So what are your thoughts on that, Omid? Again, I think, you know, what surprised me most about that speech was the fact that William had had a chance to really prepare for that moment. And, you know, from what we understand, it was in a sort of change or an addition to a speech that had already been written because of what was going on with protests and the coverage that had followed the image with the fence and, of course, the parade or have whatever you want to call it. I think at this point, it was almost not enough to skim over the issue by referring to something your father had said before. And, you know, we have to think of the background to this trip. Kensington Palace has spent the past four years briefing and speaking about William in the role of William the Statesman. And we hear it over and over again. And I think that this trip was one of the rare opportunities that he had to show that. Uh, at times improvising along the way as, as things change. But there was this sort of hesitance to break away from what had already been planned and to do anything radically different. So those couple of sentences in the speech were the absolute bare minimum. But of course, I think also it, he's in a tough position because for a member of the royal family to denounce slavery, to take 
sort of ancestrally uh, some sort of accountability for it and to apologize would also greatly affect the future of the royal family because when you start apologizing or admitting that perhaps some of the wealth amassed within your family had come from such uh, horrendous historical moments you're going to be received with the calls of we'll give it back you know and and i think that that's why we very rarely see heard much from members of the royal family on the subject is why even charles was only able to call it abhorrent and a stain on our history and not say much more than that so they're in a difficult position but i think that there is a, a way of showing empathy and care and interest as well to actually want to learn more you know I, i feel like i'm repeating myself but that was the, the the sort of reminder throughout the trip that william had this opportunity to really show that he was learning throughout the trip and at every hurdle that didn't happen and that speech of course came just hours after a meeting between prince william and the prime minister of jamaica andrew holness who was quite direct i think with william and kate who kind of stood in silence as he outlined the country's hopes of greater independence which i think we all interpreted to mean a break with the monarchy yeah i mean talk about an awkward moment there had already been talk for a couple of days leading up to that point that J- jamaica was getting ready to sort of pull the trigger on the first steps to moving towards a republic and i'd had conversations the day before with with government sources and so but i was always under the impression that this would happen once the couple left so when we saw prime minister holness actually address it to the couple's faces and and to see their reaction as well it was a very bold move but i think it was something that the people of jamaica needed to see because i think if anything there had been a few days of the couple perhaps not quite getting what was going on and someone in power needed to show that it is being heard and so for him that was a very important moment but of course it didn't reflect particularly well on the couple because this was the charm offensive and so far it had been all offense no charms and we were seeing the results of it omid is this unprecedented can you think of any other time where a a head of state has confronted a member of the royal family with ambitions to remove the queen as head of state I mean we've certainly seen in the past over the years that there have been politicians who have had the chance to spend time with a member of the royal family on a trip who may express or echo the sentiments of a section of the public that feel that they want a republic you know we've seen it happen on trips to Australia we've it's always been in the background of trips across the the Caribbean and and in the commonwealth realm but never so direct never to that the face of a future king himself um off, off the back of what had been a very difficult few days for the cambridges we saw from the prime minister that whilst he was a kind and gracious host he was also not willing to put up with what he had seen um but also to make sure that the people of the country felt that their voices were being heard because it was clear that for the two members of the royal family that were out there they weren't listening All right. Well, there is so much more to discuss with this tour. But before we get to all that, we're going to take a quick break. And while we're away, we would be so grateful if all of you out there just took a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. Stay with us. We have more of Omid Scobie coming up. 
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, everyone. Welcome back. And we are now turning our attention to the Bahamas. Yeah, which I feel like was the sort of slight sigh of sort of relief <laughs> for the couple because I think they arrived, although there was, of course, more talk of protests taking place. I think generally out of the three countries, it was m- more receptive to the royals. I think that there's, there is a greater fondness for the royal family in the Bahamas. And I, I think for the couple, that definitely would have been a relief. But I think at this point, we were sort of six days into a trip that many had already written off as a failure. And it almost didn't matter what we saw left from the couple because it had sort of been handled so appallingly throughout. Yeah, and we'd be remiss not to mention that the Bahamas National Reparations Committee released a statement calling for reparations, saying the Cambridges and their family of royals and their government must acknowledge their diverse economy was built on the backs of our ancestors and, quote, they must pay. Also, the head of the Ethiopia Africa Black International Congress Bahamas penned a letter to Will and Kate saying that they wanted to be returned home to our own vine and fig tree, Ethiopia slash Africa, with compensation. So uh, they weren't home free in the Bahamas. There there were certainly uh, protests there and people asking for reparations, uh, powerful people asking for reparations. What was interesting about this point of the trip was where I think it was when the penny started to drop the couple that they couldn't leave things as they were. And, you know, we'd started to hear from those on the ground and those within the Kensington Palace team that William had started to reflect on some of the earlier moments of the trip. And we sort of started to then build up to, of course, that uh, final statement or that speech from William that we had heard where it felt like it was almost a little too late for any of this. I think when you arrive somewhere and you fail on that level, I think that all you can really do at that point is sort of hold your hands up. And it almost felt like it was a little bit of that when we saw that statement from William. You're talking about the one that was posted on Kensington Palace social media in which he he kind of reflected, didn't he, on the nature of royal tours and what they, you know, what he feels that the royals gain from doing them. But he also, um, he talked a little bit directly about the countries that want to become republics. He said that it is their choice to do so. And one other interesting thing that he threw in there, which hadn't actually come up in public on the tour, was the question of whether he will ever be head of the Commonwealth. Mm. Now, it's not a hereditary title, so it is not a foregone conclusion that he will. Um, What do you think about that, Obed, and the fact that he brought this up seemingly unprompted? It clearly wasn't on his mind before he travelled there, or they wouldn't have been calling it the charm offensive. It was him putting his hands up and and, and accepting the current situation, was that the, the sentiment towards the royal family and their place within society across the Commonwealth realm is 
losing its purpose or its value. And I think that this was, you know, his end of tour statement was a historical moment in the way because it shrunk the reach of the reign of the British monarch for forever. I think that this was William really admitting defeat. I think that we'll probably see Charles be the last or the third and last royal to head the Commonwealth and things will look very different beyond that. But I think it also was interesting to hear him talk so far in the future when there is still one king in waiting ahead of him. <laughs> and I found that I can imagine that many of the words shared by William might not have sat so well back with Charles at Clarence House, who has his own agenda and his own way of wanting to navigate these issues when he becomes king next. Yeah, I was wondering what Charles thought about that. Did they run it by him first? Did he get a chance to look at it? It doesn't seem like something that was exactly in keeping with what Charles may have said. Yeah, it's very unlike these things are rarely ever shared across households. So I'm sure it would have been news to him at the same time. Of course, Charles was carrying out his own engagements in Ireland, uh, probably at the beginning a little myth that there was no attention on him, but then by the end of it, quite relieved that, that it wasn't on him. <laughs> <laughs> and what do you think this means for the Queen's legacy if William isn't head of the Commonwealth? Because I'm assuming what will happen is the role will go to a diplomatic a person, you know, either somebody who is an ambassador or something like that, or perhaps a head of state. I mean, you know, it could be shared around different heads of states from Commonwealth countries. So will that kind of take the Commonwealth kind of almost out of the hands of the royal family? I think there'd always been this notion that at some point that will change and that this is what works for the moment. And as William even said in his speech, you know, relationships change friendships last and I think that, that was a great sentiment to at least leave it on because it took away any chance of damaging the legacy of the commonwealth which of course is really important and it's this sort of very united family of countries that does have many reasons to exist still um, but I think with that royal connection it's clear that things are changing. People are, are asking for that. And it's time that the rules listened rather than fought against it. We're going to take one more quick break. But before we do, a reminder to follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jack Royston and Kristen is at Kristen Meinzer. We always have royal updates there as well as my latest stories for Newsweek. And when we're back, we discuss yet another PR own goal for the royals. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. 
Hey everyone, we are back. And I think many of us on the Royal Beat were expecting a bit of a rest after the frantic coverage of William and Kate's Caribbean tour. But is that what happened, Jack? No, of course not. Just two (laughs) days after William and Kate arrived home, the royals gathered with the great and the good of British society to pay respects to Prince Philip. Um, This is just a little less than a year after his death. Um, Obviously, the funeral was scaled down in order to make it COVID compliant, and this gave the royals an opportunity to do some things that they couldn't do back in April 2021. There was just one problem. Yes, there was. Somehow, inexplicably... Prince Andrew was at the center of attention. He was walking his mother, the Queen, into Westminster Abbey and was filmed live by BBC One, taking her to her seat. This is just weeks after settling that sexual abuse lawsuit. Jack, I know you and I thought the days of us talking about Virginia Jeffrey's lawsuit against Andrew were coming to an end. Clearly, that's not the case. Let's discuss this. Omid, what are your thoughts on this? I mean... Just going off what we had just been talking about in the Caribbean, you would think that this would be the week that the royals would want to pivot and avoid more negative headlines. And we sort of landed straight into more of them. Um, I'm sure the Cambridge is being quite relieved that it doesn't involve them. But listen, this service was always going to have some controversy with Andrew's attendance. And I've kind of gone back and looked at the moment a number of times to think, would it have been any different if he had just come in through a side door and sat down and left on his own? I think in in many ways, his appearance by itself, I think, would have been problematic for many, given that after last month's settlement, we haven't really heard anything from him. Andrew's still a man that has shown, shown no accountability for his role in anything. So I think the public opinion and the sentiment towards him or the lack of is exactly the same. It enraged people because we wanted to support the Queen in that moment. We wanted it to be her day and it was a beautiful service. And I, at that moment, just felt angry because I knew where this was all going to head. The focus would move over to Andrew. The service itself would be completely overshadowed. And that's exactly what happened. Now, there are mysteries around his role in this, because, of course, I think it was known to all of the family that Andrew was going to escort the Queen from Windsor Castle. It's a one hour drive to Westminster Abbey. And we saw those pictures of him sitting in the car with her. But at one point, they changed from a Land Rover or a Range Rover to this sort of state limousine. And it was at that point that many believed that Andrew would make his own entrance and that Queen would be escorted in by the Dean of Westminster. And that didn't happen. Andrew ended up carrying her right to the front of the Abbey in full view of the cameras to have that moment. Now, some argue that that's just him wanting to look after his mother and some saying that this was a PR grab. And we know that Andrew has been very keen to move on from mistakes from the past and is probably quite keen to play a role in the Jubilee this summer. So he doesn't have much time to try and repair his image. And so what's the easiest way of doing that? Well, it's standing side by side with the nation's most loved and adored figure. 
And I, I seem to recall seeing in the BBC One footage that so Andrew also helped the Queen to walk out of the Abbey afterwards, which was even for me even more problematic because she stopped along the way to talk to some of the guests, including a recipient of the Duke of Edinburgh's award, the Gold Award. And Andrew was actually kind of standing in the background, clearly listening to co- the conversation and chuckling to himself as they were talking. It was just the whole thing, again, it's this sort of failure to read what, is going on in the minds of the public and how the public feel, which is something we spoke about with the Caribbean trip. It's, I think, yes, this was a moment where the Queen was clearly in family mode and it was all about her remembering the most, the greatest relationship in her life, the most important man in her life. And, and I think that everyone really, including myself, wanted to respect that moment as much as possible. As much as within me, I was feeling this sort of anger at the situation. I thought it's not the time to talk about it, but we're now able to do that post-mortem. We're able to reflect on it. And I think that it's clear that there aren't enough people thinking of the, of the crown in this situation. This reflects so badly on the institution and Andrew has done so much damage in the last few years and continues to do so paying off that settlement, which, you know, we reportedly heard was the Queen and Charles that helped bring that sort of full amount together, was supposed to put an end to Andrew potentially harming the establishment. But actually what we saw at the Thanksgiving service was him getting in that one extra hit that will surely be the first of a number throughout this year. I'm sure he'll want to be by the Queen's side at the Derby. There'll be moments throughout the Jubilee. And I think that this is, for him, going to be his role now, supporting his mother, because there's nothing left for him to do. So, obviously, we've just heard a lot about how Prince Andrew settling this case was supposed to spare the Queen's uh, Platinum Jubilee from the kind of humiliation of having the case going on in the background. So... I mean, surely if he turns up to the Jubilee, if he's there on the Buckingham Palace balcony, that surely slightly undermines the whole point of settling the case. Well, exactly. And I think that that's what we saw with the service as well, because I think that there was a way of handling it where he would have been able to be there and, of course, celebrate the life of his father. I don't think anyone wants to deny him that. But I think that it's very different when you're front and centre alongside the head of state. This wasn't our mother there it was the head of state and it's she plays a very different role to us and so for Andrew to be there was almost disrespectful to the entire situation you know he had only just paid millions to a woman he had says he's had no recollection of either meeting and it raises the questions of who's actually involved in these decisions we know that Charles and William would have intervened had they have known just how big a spectacle yesterday would have been so Is this something that's just between the Queen and Andrew? Are there aides involved? I think that there are individuals who are clearly not managing this situation properly or afraid to try and manage the situation. But as you say, Jack, if this happens again in the summer, it's going to completely overshadow the most important moment of the Queen's legacy thus far. Mm. Well, Omid, we so appreciate all of your knowledge, all of your insights, and of course, your wonderful charm offensive with us. We've been charmed just having you here. <laughs> uh, reminder, all charm, no offense, I hope. Yes, yes <laughs> Of course, exactly. of course. <laughs> reminder, Omid is the co-author of Finding Freedom, and he's the chief royal editor for Harper's Bazaar. Omid, can you let our listeners know where they can find more of you? 
Sure. Uh, if you check me out on social media at SCOBY, uh, you'll be able to keep up with my random musings that seem to get me into trouble more often than not. But. <laughs> <laughs> Always lots of comments on your posts. <laughs> many, many comments. And that's it for this episode of The Royal Report. Be sure to join us every other week when we visit the latest royal headlines, embark on some royal deep dives, and riff on all things royal. Until next time, I'm Jack Royston. And I'm Kristen Meinzer. Thanks for listening, everyone. And a curtsy to you all. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader, like that car riding your tail. Or if you're tailgating right now, all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on Auto Trader, too. Are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time? Well, multitasking pro, cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader.